open up to Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to be in Nehemiah 7 and 8. And I want to start with an illustration from a garden, which always terrifies me because I'm horrible at gardening. I kill everything except weeds. They grow in abundance in my yard. But this is a, a well, look, what is, what is this? What's in this picture? There's two main things, three if you count the wall, but don't count the wall. A trellis? And a flowers, what are the flowers on? A vine. There's a trellis and a vine. Now, I, I feel very confident in using this illustration, even though I'm not a gardener, because it comes straight from a book that is aptly called The Trellis and the Vine. And in it, uh, the leaders, the elders read this book several years ago. It's just a really good way to think of ministry, that you need the, the thing that you're growing and the thing that it grows on. And if you neglect one over the other too often, then things go very poorly. So think for a moment. The point of growing a vine is to have a beautiful vine, in this case with beautiful flowers. If it was a grapevine, obviously you would want some fruit from it. That's the point of growing the vine. The point of growing the vine is not to have a beautiful, sturdy, immaculate trellis. If you walked into a garden and all you saw were a whole bunch of beautiful trellises, you'd be like, okay, that's interesting, but something's missing. So if you are a gardener and you spend all of your time on the trellis, fixing it, staining it, painting it, sanding it, uh, making sure that it's, it's nice and robust, and you never actually tend to the vine, you're missing the point. Likewise... If you're a gardener and you spend all your time on the vine, pruning it, watering it, helping it, but you never focus on the trellis, that vine is going to struggle because the trellis is going to crumble and the vine won't be able to grow. Now, what does this have to do with Ezra and Nehemiah? Ezra and Nehemiah, I've called God at work for this sermon series. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see two major building programs. And Ezra starts with the building of the temple. And then in Nehemiah, it starts with the building of the, the walls around Jerusalem. And to give you a little bit of context of where this has come from, if you know a bit of the history of the Old Testament, it's really helpful. God calls his people into relationship with himself through this man, Abram. And he forms the Jewish people. And, and he says, you are my people. And he makes promises to them, a covenant we're going to look at later on. Over time, his people are taken into Egypt and they're enslaved. And he miraculously rescues them. You might know the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. He rescues them out of that difficult situation. And he brings them to the wilderness and gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, and the entirety of the Old Testament law. And then he brings them into the promised land and he says, here you will be my people and I will be your God and we will be together. And he gives them a temple, first a tabernacle and then a temple where he will dwell among them. And they will be different because he's with them. Over time, if you've read the Old Testament at all, you see that God's people are unfaithful time and time and time again. And he warns them, come back, come back. Renew your fellowship with me. Restore your relationship with me. Come back. But if you don't, hardships are coming. And that's exactly what happens. His people are taken into exile. And God's goal there is that maybe, maybe away from the promised land, maybe away from their homes, maybe there they will turn back to him. 
Maybe there they will listen. And that's exactly what happens. And that's where we pick up Ezra and Nehemiah. They are returning to the promised land. And so they have these building projects. Their land is in ruins. Their trellis, if you will, has fallen apart completely. And they know that God is calling them back home. They're calling them to be God's people again. But they've got some building that needs to happen. And so they worked on the temple. And then again in Nehemiah, they worked on the walls of Jerusalem. And so here we have these people back in their homes. And they've been doing what we could call trellis sort of work. But the goal was not ultimately about the temple. It wasn't about this physical structure of the temple. And it wasn't certainly about the walls of Jerusalem. The whole point of what God was doing was to have his people in a right relationship with himself. And it's interesting that in both Ezra and Nehemiah, after Ezra tells about the building of the temple, he then talks about the building into the people. And they open up God's word and they allow God to speak to them and to change them and shape them in his image through his word. And the same thing happens in Nehemiah. We've read about the rebuilding of the walls and the construction that went on, but that wasn't the point for Nehemiah. Now he's going to focus on the people and really tend to the vine of God's people. And I've called this sermon a peculiar people. Do you ever feel a little peculiar? I mean, we're not always peculiar for the right reasons. We need to own up to that. But peculiar means different, unique, special. Sometimes it means odd, out of sync with the culture around them. God calls people into a relationship with himself. And that relationship makes them peculiar, different than the world around them. And that's exactly what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we want to look at what does it mean to be the peculiar people of God? What is it that should be at its root sort of our definition of what it means to be the people of God? And the first thing that we see is that the people of God are called by God. God takes the initiative. We're going to see this in chapter 7. I'm not going to read this chapter. You can kind of skim through it. It's mostly a list of names. Please don't make me read them. I won't ask you to either. It's a lot of names. But basically an overview of the chapter in verses 1 through 4. They're finishing up the building project, but the gates aren't guarded yet. And so Nehemiah coordinates protecting the city and guarding the gates. But I do want to point out verse 4. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious. But there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So what's going on is that they built the wall around the city. They have a city ready for people, but it's mostly empty. Beautiful trellis. It needs a vine. It's the point of why they're there. Something is supposed to be growing. There are supposed to be people within this city. Now, later on in another sermon, we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 11. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we see that Nehemiah will choose one out of 10 people that lived in the surrounding areas to come and move into the city, to repopulate the city. But how? How should they choose? Who is it that should move into the city? And we see what's going on there, this restrictive process in chapter 7. Because the rest of chapter 7 is this list of people. And he says in verse 5, So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. 
He wants to know who's there. Who are they? And then he says, I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. Now, if you remember back in Ezra, we saw a very similar list. In fact, we actually literally saw the exact same list. Word for word, it's the same list because Nehemiah is taking this so serious, he digs up the records from Ezra and brings those out to say, these are the people that God has brought back to the land. Why does it matter, though? Shouldn't anybody that wants to come be welcome? Shouldn't the gates of Jerusalem just be thrown open and anybody that wants to come in, just come on in. doesn't matter who you are, just come on in. The biblical answer is no, actually. God calls his people. And the people of God are determined by God's calling. Now understand what's going on here. Ezra and now Nehemiah are being very careful that the people that are repopulating the the city of Jerusalem are Jewish people. We go, oh, so racist. It's not actually. Because we saw back in Ezra that there there was a way, there was a chance for those who were not naturally born Jewish people to become Jewish, to come under the Jewish law. This is not a racial discrimination. It is a religious discrimination. It absolutely is. Only those who are following the God of Israel and coming under his law are allowed to come back and live in this city. Why? Why is this so important to them? In order to understand this, we need to back up to Genesis chapter 12. And we need to look at a couple very important covenants that God made. A covenant in scripture is a promise between two people, or in this case, a promise between God and his people. It's like a legally binding document or agreement. They didn't sit down with a bunch of lawyers and hash out things that nobody knows how to read, and then everybody signs it on the bottom line. And part of that signature is saying you read and you agreed to all of it, but you know you didn't because nobody could. It always strikes me as odd when you sit down at one of those meetings, you have to read and sign this this contract, and and you start reading it, and the person that's waiting for you to sign it looks at you like, really? And I'm like, it says that I've read it, and that I agree to it, and you're not going to allow me to read it. Anyway, that's a sermon for another day. (laughs) But they had covenants. And a covenant, because they weren't necessarily a a written society, they did a lot by word of mouth. A covenant was a verbal agreement, but it was every bit as binding as a legal contract today. And so in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we have one of the most important covenants in Scripture. It is God's covenant with Abraham. Every Sunday of this series, I've started by talking about God called his people into a relationship through Abraham, and from him come the Jewish people. This is that call. This is the foundation of that relationship. It's God's covenant with Abraham and all of the Jewish people. It's also known as the, if you want to sound really fancy, the Abrahamic covenant. If we didn't have a time change, that would have rolled off my tongue. All right. But I lost an hour, so that's what you get. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's God's covenant to Abraham. He says, you will be my people. You and your offspring are my people. I'm calling you. I'm claiming you as my own. 
He says, I promise I will bless you. And he says, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. And it's interesting because we come to the New Testament and the greatest blessing that God gives to the entire world is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is born in the Jewish nation as a Jewish person, as a fulfillment of this promise right here. And you and I are sitting here, if you're a Christian today, you are sitting here as fulfillment of, through Jesus Christ of this promise. Because I'm guessing most of us here are not Jewish. So praise God for this promise and this covenant. This shaped the Old Testament people. They were people of the covenant. God had made a promise to Abraham and his offspring. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, they were careful. Are you from the family of Abraham? Or have you come under and through the Old Testament law and become Jewish? Are you part of the family of Abraham? Later in Genesis 15, God confirms this covenant. And he makes it clear through a a ceremony that Abraham would have understood that this is a covenant, a promise that depends on God and God alone. It's a one-sided contract. It is God saying to Abraham, I am doing this no matter what. And he binds himself to his own promise. And so this formed the nation of Israel. This formed the Jewish people, God's people. They were called by God and they were called to be different. And there's another covenant that explains what that was supposed to look like. It's God's covenant to his people through Moses. Again, if you want to be fancy, it's the Mosaic covenant. You know it as the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. God gives the stipulations, these Ten Commandments, which are kind of like a syllabus, really, of the rest of the law. And God's people said, We will obey that. And God says, great, this forms the relationship and it teaches us as God's people and it taught them, you are to be peculiar, you are to be different than the world around you. And Ezra and Nehemiah were being very careful and very certain to make sure that those that were participating in God's people were truly of the people of God. Now, why does this matter today? Because we are still called to be a peculiar people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a, ro- a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Friends, we are called to be different. We are called to be a unique and peculiar people in this world, different from the world around us. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us different. It's not just a bunch of rituals. It's not a certain amount of of hymns or songs that we sing on Sunday morning. It's not certain holidays that we celebrate. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel makes us who we are. It is God's call to be his people through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and you accept that, you are saved. You are brought into God's people. But we are also, just as they were, we are called to live different. We don't just add Jesus onto our life and say, thanks, God, that was great. I'm going to go do all this stuff over here now that I want to do. 
We come to his word and he says, this then is how you are to live. We are called to be different. You know, I just finished up a two-week Sunday school class on church membership for those that are looking to join the church. This is why, as a church here at Orchard, we practice church membership. Because the church is called to be different. And we want to make sure before someone joins our church that everybody understands this is what we mean, this is what we focus on, this is what it means to be a member. If you're interested in that process, we just finished the class, you're totally out of luck. No, um, if you're interested in it, contact me. I can meet with you individually, or we can set up another class. But that's why church membership is important. Who is the church? It is not everybody that walks through our doors. It is those that are saved by Jesus Christ. Now, the application of this for us and for them is that we must allow God to determine who God's people are. It is not up for a public vote. It is not up for a popularity contest. It is not about just coming together and saying, oh, we all happen to like this same genre or style or or rituals. We must allow God to determine who God's people are. And God calls his people together and he shapes us and changes us. He did it back then and he still does it today. And so God plants the vine that's going to grow as his people. But he's also going to tend to that vine and to shape it and care for it. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. God's people, this peculiar people, are shaped by God's word. I want you to remember again, this is a pattern in Ezra and Nehemiah. You have a building project followed by the work of God's word in God's people. And that's where we're picking it up here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me read at the end of uh, chapter 7, starting at the end of 73, because the verse division is a little weird, all the way through verse 8 of chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Meshael, Milkaijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. I'm just making those up, by the way. Don't. <laughs> yeah, when you read scriptural names, just fake it. Just act like you know what, how they pronounced. I could be totally wrong. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelton, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Do you understand what's going on in this passage? This is a six-hour sermon. 
We've got some time left. Six hours. And, and just turn back to verse 1. How did it start? All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Who said, let's do this? Was it some one holy guy that just stood up? Come on, guys, we really need to be in this together. Let's try it. I know you don't want to do it, but let's try to do it. No, the people come to the leaders and say, we want to hear from the word of God. We want to hear from the word of God. Bring out the book of the Lord. They had set up a platform. It seems they were kind of ready for this. And the teachers, Ezra and some of the other priests, they're going to stand up on the platform. That looks vaguely familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) Friends, this is why preaching is important. The word of God is meant to be publicly declared And it's meant to be explained and applied so that people can understand it and apply it and live it out in their lives. That's exactly what they're doing here. There's a movement among many churches. Let's do away with preaching. It's no longer applicable to us today. We just don't need it. Garbage. God's word has preaching over and over again. We are told to have the word of God preached taught, explained over and over and over again. Six hours. It seems like one after another would get up and they would read a little bit and they would say, this is what it means. This this is what it means. This is how it applies to you. This is how I'm going to help you to understand what God's word is saying. For six hours. Hours they went on and on, and the people stood there. And I love when the book is first brought out, they worship. They're so excited for the word of God to be preached and to be read and to be taught. They just burst out in spontaneous prayer. Man, we're so spoiled, aren't we? I've got like 20 of these. And I've got like a million more accessible at any moment on my phone or my computer or my tablet. We are saturated with the possibility of picking up and looking at the word of God, which is wonderful. And I praise God for it. But the downside of it is that we've lost how special this is. The word of God. I pray that we would have that heart in our day-to-day lives when we wake up, say, I need the word of God. Bring out the word. When we come to church, I need the word of God. Bring out the word. That we would have that overflow of worship because God has chosen to communicate with little old us through the power of his word. What a blessing that is. Look at verses 9 through 12 because we see the people's response. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. See early potlucks also in the Bible. (laughs) This day is holy to our God. Or to our Lord, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites, 
calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink to send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. What a powerful example of responding to God's word. First of all, understand the people are hearing this law being read. For many of them, this would have been maybe their first exposure to it. They knew about it, but they wouldn't have had access to the scrolls. The scrolls of the law were exceedingly rare. I talked about back in Ezra that on one of Ezra's trips, it talks that he was bringing the scroll to Jerusalem. He was bringing the law. This might have been their only copy of the law. The rest of them had been lost in the invasions. So here they are reading this law again, just as Ezra had done it back uh, around the dedication of the temple as well. And so they're bringing out the law and they're reading it. And how do the people respond? They weep. They mourn. This is one of the reasons I think that preaching of the word of God is becoming less popular today. Because this is so often how God's word impacts us. We listen to it and we go, oh, I'm not living that. I'm not trusting that. I'm out of line with that. That's really convicting. And so, so many churches, so many Christians are saying, I don't need that. I'm just going to put that on the shelf. Just teach me that God loves me and accepts me just the way I am. I'll just hear that. God's word is convicting so often. And we need to sit under that. We need to be changed by that. We need to be impacted by that. And they are. They're repenting, they're acknowledging their sin, and they're weeping. But isn't it interesting how the leaders respond? It's not that they're saying that the weeping is wrong. They're saying it's not the right time. There will be a time for weeping and repentance, but they need to start with rejoicing. God has shaped his people, called his people, loved them enough to give them his holy word. He has saved them out of Egypt. He has saved them out of exile. He has brought them back home. And they are to rejoice. There is a time for grief. There is a time for sorrow. But there's also a time to rejoice, to come together as the people of God and say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done. The law also told the people, how much God loved them. The law that they were reading told them how God had saved them and called them. And this was absolutely a cause for celebration. So here they are. They end that first day after reading God's word all morning with this huge meal and celebration and people are sharing food with one another. I love this because it tells me that after Nehemiah came back and they rebuilt the walls and they said, what's next? Their first priority was to say, we need to be shaped by the word of God. So we need to ask ourselves, are we? Is that a passion of our hearts to be shaped by God's word? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God takes everybody exactly as they are. You don't have to clean yourself up or fix yourself up for God. He takes everybody exactly the way they are, but he leaves no one unchanged. The gospel changes us. God's word changes us and it calls us to be different than the word or the world around us. Not to thumb our nose at them and say, oh, you horrible people out there. We're so much better and God loves us more. 
No, we are called to live out the gospel, to live out God's word so that when the people in the world look at us and they go, you guys are kind of weird, we go, we are. Can I tell you why? And we can talk to them about Jesus Christ. Not to insult them or put them down or judge them, but to present Christ, the gospel that saves 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God. God does his work in our lives through the powerful truth of his word. Read, proclaimed, explained, applied, studied, digested, poured over, grieved over, rejoiced over. It's all the power of God's word at work in our lives. We do not determine who we are. We don't determine who we are as individuals. We don't determine who we are as a church. This church is not a civic organization. It is not a club of like-minded people that get together and just say, who do we want to be? Let's do it this way. This is who we are. It's not a group that we just come to to get certain things, like you go to Starbucks to get your coffee exactly the way you want it, while I go to church on Sunday morning to get worship exactly the way I want it. We are called to be different. We are called by the power of the gospel saved through Jesus Christ, and that makes and forms the church, and then we are to live through the power and the life-transforming message of God's word. We are to live as peculiar, God-shaped people, shaped through his word. There's one more aspect of being the peculiar people of God in this chapter that I want to look at, because they also spend time remembering and celebrating God's works. A peculiar people of God remember and celebrate what God has done. Look at verses 13 through 18. On the second day of the month, so this is the following day, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim... This word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Understand what's going on here. First of all, let's start with the the end of it. This six-hour sermon that went on one day, it went on the next day, and the next day, and then for seven days, they poured over the Word of God. They poured over the Word of God because they said, if we're going to get this right as the people of God, if we're going to come back into this city given to our ancestors that they lost, and we're going to live as the people of God, we have got to be true to the Word of God. 
it's still that important to us today. The other thing that's interesting is this festival. This festival is known as the festival of booths or tabernacles. It was commanded in the law. They were to leave their homes and build like a little tent out of branches on the roof of their house or out in their field or in the city. And they were to live there for the week. And you go, that's weird. Why would you leave a perfectly good home to go live in a bunch of sticks for a week? And in the Old Testament law, God commanded them to do this to remind them of something. That when they left Egypt, they were wanderers. Pilgrims in the wilderness, living in tents, moment from moment. And it was an ongoing annual reminder to God's people from God saying, I called you, I shaped you, I saved you. You are wanderers in this place. We, each one of us, are refugees until we reach home in heaven. And we need constant reminders of that so we don't get too comfortable here, but also that we remember we are called by God and we belong to him. God did this for them because he knew how quickly his people would forget. We still have a tendency to forget today. And sure, we have things in our culture and in our lives today. We have holidays, Christmas and Easter that Well, they're supposed to remind us of those things, aren't they? And so often they don't. They've been filled with so many other things. That's why as a church, we always seek to cut through some of that other stuff to say this is what we're celebrating. This is what we're reminding ourselves. Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. Easter is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what they're about. We've built this into our lives in other ways. Periodically, and I hope again soon, there's a tub back here and we fill it up with water. And somebody will get up and say, I was a sinner, but I've been saved by Jesus Christ, and I want to publicly declare that through baptism. And we lower them in the water as a a symbol of being dead and buried in their sins because Christ died in their place. And we raise them back out of the water because they're made alive through Jesus Christ and they have new life in him. And it is a reminder of what God has done. It's a powerful reminder. If you've never been baptized, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, I'd love to talk to you. It is a powerful statement in your own life and it's a powerful testimony to others. And we can talk about that. Another reminder we celebrated last week, Lord's Supper. We do it every month. Jesus died for me. More than bread, I need Jesus. The covenant that was signed in blood by animals in the Old Testament, the New Testament, is Jesus' blood. He seals us. He paid for our sins. And we remind ourselves of that over and over again. We build these things into our lives because we need to remind ourselves what God has done. We need to celebrate what God has done. You know, often when we sing the song, Come Thou Fount, There's that line in there, here I raise my Ebenezer. It's not Ebenezer Scrooge. The word Ebenezer comes from the King James in 1 Samuel chapter 7. The Israelites crossed the Jordan going into the the promised land. And before they got through the water, they picked up some stones and they set them up in a pile on the other side of the Jordan. And God told them to do this so that one day when they're 
their kids or other family members go, hey, what's up with that? What's with this pile of stones? They could say, God brought us through. And we know he will continue to bring us onward. That's what an Ebenezer is. Thus far, the Lord has brought me. And I know he will continue to carry me on. Here I raise my Ebenezer. That's what that line means. Ebenezers are anything that we set up to remind ourselves. Communion is an Ebenezer. Baptism is an Ebenezer. Church membership is an Ebenezer. God has done this. And every time we come together as the church and we open the word of God, we are raising an Ebenezer saying, let's look at what God has done. And every time you open God's word in your own home or around your dinner tables, you talk about what the Lord has done in your life or you read from his word, you are raising an Ebenezer. You are remembering and celebrating the work of God. So let me ask you, are you peculiar Are we peculiar enough? Are we peculiar for the right reasons? The reasons according to what God says. Because we are called to be God's people, saved through his son, Jesus Christ. And that needs to make all the difference in our lives and in this world. I believe the greatest need of the world today, with all of the political and cultural upheavals, The greatest need is the exact same need that it's always been since the very beginning. We need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And God's greatest tool, his greatest method for bringing that to the world is you and me. And how we live as his peculiar people. So let me ask you, how's the vine of your relationship with God growing? Is it being watered by God's word and fellowship with believers? Are you growing and flourishing and using your gifts for God's glory and for his kingdom? Have you spent way too long on the trellis? You say, oh, I get dressed up for church every Sunday and I show up and my attendance is impeccable and I do all these things for God and I've been so important in the church. That's great. It's wonderful trellis work. It's important. But without the vine, it's meaningless. Are you saved by Jesus? Are you growing in him? There are others that will say, you're right, pastor. I focus on the vine. It's just me and Jesus. I just need Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. And I love Jesus. And I have such a close personal walk with him. That's great. Are you involved in a church? Are you committed and serving? Because that's also important. And God says that we are to grow in that relationship and we are to gather together with the church to grow in that relationship. We are called to be a peculiar people. And that's my prayer for us as a church in everything that we do, shaped and informed by God's word, celebrating what God has done, reminding ourselves, and in all ways reminding that he gets all the credit because he is the one who called us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. As we think about who we are as the church, who we are as Christians, it all goes back to you. We didn't start this. We were living in rebellion against you, dead in our sins, your word tells us. We didn't start it. You did. You called out to us. You sent your son to save us. You reached out to us through the power of the gospel. 
And God, we praise you for that. And then, God, you gave us your word to shape us, form us, chisel away the rough edges. And sometimes we don't like it. And we want to just close the book and not listen and not hear what's being preached or what's being read from the page. But, God, we need it. And you love us enough to know we need it. So may we be people of your word, pouring over it, studying it, discussing it encouraging and challenging one another, sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word when we can. And God, may we remember and celebrate what you've done in our lives, individually, in our church, in our world. May it flow out of us naturally in our conversations, whether it be with other Christians or even with other people who don't believe, to say, let me tell you what my Jesus has done. May we be Ebenezer's that are raised up in this world, your peculiar people, so that when others look at us and say, why are you the way you are? We would be, ans- we would be able to answer in a way that's not about us or our preferences, but all about your son, Jesus Christ, who saved us, in whose name we pray, amen.